medical gloves. The surge in demand worldwide has put unprecedented pressure on manufacturers of gloves. In Southeast Asia, the heart of the global supply chain, and with increased production has come ever greater exploitation of the workers who make them. As factories ramp up production, a labor rights activist expressed concerns about exploitation of workers. Profits should not come on the backs of children, slaves, or those otherwise forced to work. Any company that is procuring masks or other personal protective equipment that wants to avoid forced labor content in those products should not be sourcing them from Sinjar. As Top Glove shareholders bask in the boom, the rubber glove heroes of this global pandemic slog it out in distant sweatshops. Their cries of anguish drowned out by our screaming for more PPE. Kia ora, I'm Nikki Mando, and today on The Detail, I don't know about you, but the second wave of COVID-19 has me reaching for my personal protective equipment, especially masks and gloves. Millions and millions of them are on shelves and in stockpiles in this country alone. And every day, factories mainly in Asia are churning out millions more to meet an almost insatiable demand worldwide. But where do they come from? What are the conditions in the factories? And how can New Zealanders tell whether the PPE they are wearing is ethically sourced and freed from forced labour and modern slavery? The answer is they can't. Global demand for rubber gloves could grow 11% with 330 billion pieces this year, and two-thirds of which is likely to come from Malaysia. And the industry is having trouble keeping pace with demand, even after running at full capacity. Before COVID, we were running 85%. Now we are running close to 100%. Quick background. Regular detail listeners will know I'm not normally on the show. I'm just filling in for Sharon Brett Kelly for a few days. My day job is as a business reporter with newsroom.co.nz. That's where I first started looking at where New Zealand's gloves and masks were coming from when the US's Customs and Border Protection announced it was banning all imports of disposable gloves from two factories owned by a Malaysian company called Top Glove after long-running labour abuse allegations. I'd never heard of Top Glove, but I should have. They're a big deal in the world of disposable gloves. Top Glove is the world's largest manufacturer of gloves. We can produce 61 billion pieces of gloves per year, or 115,000 gloves per minute, and almost 166 million per day. And we command more than 25% of the world market share for rubber gloves. The longer the pandemic goes, the bigger the bonanza for Top Glove. In June, it announced profits up 365%. Its share price went from $5 US at the beginning of the year to almost $30 in early August. But then came that US labour abuse ban, the second in a year against a Malaysian glove company. The first was in October 2019 and involved a different company, WRP Asia Pacific. The US bans follow investigative reporting from major credible international news outlets about conditions for migrant workers in the Malaysian glove factories. This one is from the UK's Channel 4. Top Gloves migrant workers often live for years on end in squalid company hostels, wedged in cheek by jowl in COVID-friendly clusters. With no proper kitchen facilities in dorms, workers cook on naked flames and claim that in some hostels there are no fire escapes. We were seeing 
uh, migrant worker exploitation, including uh, extraordinary long hours of work, very low wages, and crucially, uh, most workers was, were levied with heavy recruitment debt, which is a, one of the key indicators of modern slavery, according to the International Labour Organization. And that was what workers were telling us from within, and that was exactly the kind of uh, messages that com the company Top Glove were extremely keen to have not come out. So it really sparked our interest, and the more workers that we talked to, the more this was confirmed uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. This is Edward Miller. He's a Labour researcher and activist who spent almost five years working in Malaysia. He's just back in New Zealand, locked away in a quarantine hotel. Well, I became interested in the, the Top Love situation in sort of mid-2018 when there were a number of activists who were working around this issue. They were real concern about migrant worker exploitation taking place in Top Glove, about debt bondage and, and modern slavery. We were aware that Top Glove represented a huge proportion of the rubber glove market. So it appeared that the conditions that were set by Top Glove uh, were effectively, they, they would define the working conditions for workers throughout the Malaysian rubber glove industry, which is around about two-thirds of the entire world's uh, rubber glove uh, production. Miller and other activists have been trying to publicise the plight of workers in Malaysia's glove industry for more than two years. Miller wrote an article about it for the spin-off in 2018 after seeing production records showing Top Glove and WRP products being imported by at least three New Zealand companies. I've seen those records and others from 2020 showing Top Glove products are still arriving in this country. And with the worldwide second wave of the virus, glove factories need more workers and they need them to work longer hours. There was never really any question um, that they would be allowed to not work. There was an assumption that everyone was doing 12-hour days and you would be doing maybe up to 30 days in a row. Uh, and one other thing that happened during that period is that the Malaysian government actually said that uh, Top Glove and the rest of the rubber glove industry no longer had to comply with the legal regulation on the maximum number of hours that you could do. 104 was the, the legal standard per month, and then Top Glove and the other glove companies were given a, uh, an extra roughly 50 hours. They were allowed to do 150 hours of overtime per month. That's an extra 35 hours of overtime a week on top of Malaysia's standard 48-hour week. That's 83 hours a week. To do that, you have to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I can't imagine it. I'm dead if I have to do a couple of 12-hour days. The migrant workers, mostly from Nepal, Bangladesh and Myanmar, have no choice. One of the reasons they're doing so many hours is many of them start their jobs owing thousands of dollars to recruitment companies who have secured them the work in the factories. Before they can even begin sending money home to their families, these migrants have to pay off the debt. But they're on such low wages, that can take them a long time. At the time when the first investigation came out, workers at Top Club were paid um, a basic wage of 1,100 ringgits per month. That equates to about 265 US dollars per month. 265 US dollars is 400 New Zealand dollars. For a 48-hour week, that works out at $2 an hour. Which is not very much money, but when you think about it in the context of the recruitment debt that they were facing, if you're Nepali, generally you had about 1,500 US dollars worth of recruitment debt. If you were Bangladeshi, it could be up to 5,000 
US dollars worth of recruitment debt. 5,000 is around about what they would make in an entire year, provided they were taking as many hours of overtime as they possibly could. But presumably taking this sort of overtime is, is really damaging. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unsafe for the workers themselves. It means that the, they never get any free time, not, nothing close to a work-life balance. But there's also dangers of fatigue and cutting corners, accidents taking place. That, that was a real concern for us as well. So does what's happening in these glove factories meet the definition of modern slavery? It's a complicated one to get a full understanding of. The International Labour Organization has a list of about 11 indicators and it's not you don't it's not like a checklist where you can tick off one two three and say that indicates modern slavery because you it could be that one of those factors alone indicates modern slavery but there are things like restriction of movement uh, intimidation and threats uh, passport retention as you've mentioned withholding wages debt bondage uh, excessive overtime a couple of others like that but as you can see from the investigations that have been done by The Guardian and Thomson Reuters and, and Channel 4, etc., etc., a lot of those boxes are being ticked. And that's why the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol uh, stopped the import of Top Glove products into the United States. I've been a bit shocked. Products that have been banned in the U.S. are coming into New Zealand. Yeah, it is really concerning. The fact of the matter is that we don't have regulation or, or rules on our book that really allow us to be able to ban those products on, on the basis of modern slavery or migrant worker exploitation. In the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, there were some rules around labor, but they're only triggered in the context of a trade dispute. So you have to have basically a, a, a New Zealand-based rubber glove factory which is not engaging in forced labour to be able to file a complaint. What we would like to see is a Ministry of Health and, and the New Zealand government saying that we're making a commitment to making sure there's no forced labour and migrant worker exploitation in our PPE supply chains. Which is not as easy as it sounds, is it? It's hard to get this information. The factories themselves are policed by private security guards. It's very difficult for union organisers to get in there. NGOs have very limited access. We can't really rely on the private sector organisations that are supposed to certify the labour conditions that are going on there because at the end of the day, their paycheck relies on them making sure that they provide an assessment that reflects what Top Glove and the other companies want. Are you telling me that the audits and the verification that being carried out on these factories are being paid for by the factories and done by somebody who might not be prepared to give a bad audit because they might not get any business in the future? Absolutely. That's the way the system works for most certification. It's not just Malaysian gloves. If you are one of the millions of people around the world wearing a face mask because of the coronavirus pandemic, this footage may concern you. This New York Times investigation released last month suggests dozens of new factories making face masks and other PPE have sprung up in the Chinese province of Xinjiang since the pandemic started. And these factories are staffed using Uyghur and other mainly Muslim minority people. Behind this propaganda is a hidden story. 
about a long-standing and highly controversial government labor program that experts say often puts people to work against their will. The rural poor that are being put into factory work are not going by choice. There are these coercive quotas that cause people to be put into factory work when they don't want to be. And that could be considered forced labor under international law. We found that protective gear from problematic supply chains is continuing to make its way into the U.S. and around the world. So are these masks ending up in New Zealand? I think there's likely problems with some of the other supply chains. Uh, Most of the N95 masks are produced in the Philippines and China, both of which are countries that have major concerns about labor rights. Uh, Philippines is now on the ITUC list of of most dangerous countries for workers and unions, and China doesn't allow independent unions. So I think we need to look more deeply into a lot of the supply chains. But how do you do that? With difficulty, says Steve Arder. He's a New Zealander, founder and CEO of Eagle Protect, the only disposable glove supply company in the world certified as a B Corp. B Corp certification is a bit like fair trade for the whole company. Eagle Protect has operations in New Zealand and the US, and Arda has some pretty scary stories about quality and hygiene problems in some factories he's visited over the last decade as he hunts for ethical PPE. Cockroaches in the factories, cyanide traces in the rubber, dirty fingerprints and pathogens like E. coli on the products. There's been huge um, incidents in the last um, six months, obviously, things like masks. Uh, there's been, there were 10,000 new mask factories set up in China immediately after the pandemic. Um, and when, they, when I say factory, I use that very loosely. It's usually a room with a whole lot of people in it packing masks. Um, in, in one case, I've seen photos of, of, a, of a group of people packing used masks um, back into boxes. Um, and we know from some of the media we've seen that some of the masks that have come into New Zealand have failed quality standards. Yep. He said used masks being packed back into boxes. But for this story, I'm more interested in labour conditions. I ask him, how do you know whether a supplier you use is treating its work as well? We make a commitment to visit our factories regularly, and I've been personally to all our factories many times. We'd visit all our factories annually, either me or or someone else within the team, and we'd go through all the factories and and run a series of our own internal audits. And now we're using platforms out of Europe, for example, like CEDEX. That's an ethical supply chains auditing group. We have, have... auditing teams around the world, and they will tell the factory they're going to turn up one day between, say, the 3rd of August and the 17th of August and be there for two days, and they interview staff um, anonymously in their own language and can can get feedback on any treatment or mistreatment. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's, you know, we've been better and better at it. And, you know, ultimately, I I see the day where we can go to a big customer of ours in New Zealand and show them on our computer a video of a a live camera feed at the pick um, so they can see exactly what's going on. And there's a a bit of time to go before that, but that'll be the next step. Just keep it totally transparent. And I think that will help the factories perform better as well. Top Glove has responded to the US ban by talking about all the audits it has, all the good labour practice certifications it has. How does that happen? Anybody can make up certificates. And do you think that they do? I've seen bogus certificates for product from all around the world in the last three or four months. No doubt about that. 
but I, I don't know about Top Glove in particular. I mean, they've obviously been caught out and repeatedly. And even though, and I guess it's like a warrant of fitness, um, I don't know about you, but in the old days, you'd always, if your tyres were a little bit bald, you'd always find a spare one to do while you went through the warrant of fitness <laughs> check and then put your old ones back on. I guess one thing has been audited and everything been okay on the day. It's what happens, you know, the day after. You say you visit every year, but do you not worry that that's not enough? I do, um, to a point, except we've been using all of our factories now for, from 15 to eight years, I think, is our shortest run with the factory. So these are long-term relationships, and, and we've been that many times. So there's an, there's an element of trust, and you get, you know, you sit down with them and you meet with them and have meals with them, and you sort of get a feeling for what's going on and how they treat people. Um, and that's, you know, it's not perfect, but that helps. Um, and I've, we've been to factories where we've started a relationship, and um, it's. Um, not been right. We've felt it's felt it's been wrong and we've got out of it. This PPE forced labour investigation is the second international labour rights story I've covered in the last six months. The first one was about modern slavery in the Italian tin tomato trade. We covered that on the detail in October last year. And I had the same unease when I was working on that story. And that's because the opaque nature of our supply chains means it's really hard to tell where and under what conditions the tomatoes you buy in the supermarket or the gloves your doctor is wearing were produced. But when a tin of tomatoes that comes all the way from Italy is less than half the price of a tin of tomatoes grown in the Hawke's Bay, it's hard not to be a bit suspicious. And when our government departments are screwing down the price of PPE to get the best possible deal, there's the same nasty niggle. Everyone's on a budget, and so... uh they willing to pay half a cent more per glove because they have a very clean and transparent supply chain or, or not. Because you're saying that when you bid for medical contracts, they are taking the cheapest yeah. product. In my opinion, yes, and that's, that's probably what they're measured on in many ways because they're spending so much money on all these items of PPE. But, I mean, the whole idea of a request for proposal at an RFP process is to get things in bulk cheap. I mean, that's why it's set up, and large companies use the same process. Ironically, the focus the COVID-19 pandemic is putting on masks, gloves and other PPE could also have some positive effects for workers making that equipment, Edward Miller says. Probably the most decisive one would be that US Customs and, and Border Patrol one, uh, because they blocked Top Glove from being able to access their largest market. And as a result of that, there was negotiations that took place and Top Glove have now agreed to uh, refund recruitment debt uh, to the tune of 50 million ringgit, which is, uh, I guess, about 15 million US dollars. Top Glove management is having to stand up in front of journalists and regulators and explain what it's doing to improve conditions for workers. Here's Top Glove managing director Lee Kim Miao talking to Bloomberg last week about what the company is doing to meet CBP concerns. We have also taken measures to tell the CBP that uh, we want to do good. We have the best of intentions to improve and uh, we want to do it properly right. this time. And the COVID-19 has afforded us the opportunity uh, to do it well. And one of the things we have done immediately uh, was we uh, made our first remediation payment yesterday. I think the other issues like Passports over time, rest days uh, uh, have all been resolved. 
unlikely, say the Labour activists, but it's certain to bring some improvements. And in New Zealand? Here too, maybe, just maybe, the pressure is having some effect. We engaged with the Ministry of Health for a while and they were able to confirm to us that from April onwards they had stopped purchasing Top Glove products, which was uh, a huge relief to find uh, because we're pretty sure that there were some coming in. Um, there was one buyer which uh, we found has been selling to some private hospitals and to one of the supermarket brands, Foodstuffs. Uh, but we were very happy to see that Foodstuffs launched uh, an investigation and, and have, in the short term at least, pulled Top Glove products off their shelves. So we certainly will have some Top Glove products left over in New Zealand um, and a small amount of buying taking place. But uh, a lot of it has been removed uh, due to the various investigations that have gone forth and, and various efforts by people engaging with buyers and, uh, and procurement agencies. Is it enough? First, Steve Arder. I think we could be much more transparent um, in terms of, of uh, some of this work. The, the, I'd say for the US Customs and Border Protection to put our ban on top glove in the middle of a pandemic was a pretty gutsy move. Um, and it's been criticised by some, but it's, I mean, the answer to that is, so if we're really desperate for gloves, is it OK to mistreat the staff? And the answer is no, of course. And Edward Miller? I think we need to end recruitment fees. I think that's the biggest kind of noose that locks workers into a very uh, unsafe and, and mentally damaging and exhausting kind of working conditions. Uh, but I think across the board... We need to have more uh, transparency in what our supply chains look like. If I work in a food factory, if I work in a doctor's surgery, um, if I go and buy gloves at the supermarket, can I know that I'm not wearing gloves produced using forced labour? At this stage, no, you can't. Um, and I think it would be great if you're one of those uh, professions if you're using rubber gloves on a regular basis, that you talk to your employer and say that this is something that concerns you, that you know that there's concerns that have been raised about forced labour and, and modern slavery in these supply chains, that you want some answers, and, and you want to make sure that those answers are of a high, high quality. That's it for today. I'm Nikki Mando. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Edward Miller and Steve Arder. Kakite Arnold.